there's such a, a palpable, sweet feeling in this hall right now. Um, it reminds me of a saying, a Native American saying, um, that I'd like to share with you. When you were born, you cried and the world rejoiced. Live your life in such a manner that when you die, the world will cry and you will rejoice. And um, that's how it is with Menindraji for all of us who've been touched by him. And I think that it's really um, the path, you know, this, this path of awakening. Um, Tonight I'm going to um, finish talking about the seven factors of enlightenment. And really when these um, factors come into balance, uh, we can live this life that when we die, uh, the world cries and we rejoice. You know, this is, this is what we're doing in this path of awakening. And just to go over, you know, what I kind of covered last week for those of you who weren't here, uh, the seven factors of awakening or enlightenment are um, so beloved, and they tend to be quite uplifting. And it's said that the devas or the celestial beings like to listen to them. You know, it's it's just like, um, you know, that the heart tends to rejoice listening to. Um, these qualities of mind that um, are the roots of peace. So I think that uh, when we come on retreat or we come to meditation practice, uh, we're really interested in the roots of peace, but also when we're uncovering aspects of ourselves, we really uncover the roots of war within us. Uh, and it's good to be able to understand what the roots of war within us are, that we're all capable of just about anything um, destructive or constructive, and to also understand what the roots of peace are. So the roots of peace are these seven factors, and the first is mindfulness, which um, we've talked a lot about during this retreat. Um, but I'd like to... Uh, touch into it again at the beginning of this talk, because it's really, if you think of the weaving of life, or even the weaving of a, a balanced heart or mind, uh, remembering that balance in the face of change is, uh, is change. It's not a fixed state. Uh, but mindfulness is really like the warp of a weaving. And the, the other six factors are like the weft. But mindfulness is really uh, meant to be present with these other factors. And they hel mindfulness helps ripen, develop, cultivate these other factors. Uh, so last week, I talked about the first three as the aspects of mind that help us open to how things are. So the first energizing or opening or awakening factor is investigation. It's that curiosity. It's that questioning, you know, what's happening right now 
free from ideas about it, free from concepts about it. It's said that this quality of mind helps us see um, very deeply anicca, or change, to understand it, to come to that insight. Investigation leads to insight into change. It leads to insight into dukkha, uncertainty, vulnerability, this kind of almost unbearable vulnerability that we never know what's going to happen, that's so hard for us to face. And then the third insight around um, anatta, that whatever appears in this world is um, empty of a solid, separate self, insubstantial. So investigation is this quality of mind that brightens up um, what's happening so that we can have insight into what's happening through anything. And remember, this isn't just insight into anicca through breath or sound, but it's really insight into anicca through hopelessness, through knee pain. And remember always that this liberation happens through any moment. It's not through any particular moment that we're developing preferences for, like through calm or happiness. And then the second energizing quality is um, courageous energy, that heroic energy uh, that um, we all know that it takes to just get through a day of practice. Sometimes I think just, just being here for a day takes a lot of courage. Even if you try not to pay attention, it's hard to be at IMS, you know, without paying attention. <laughs> Something calls you back to your experience, even if you're curled up in the fetal position in your bed. You know, it's like the bell rings. You know, it's amazing how you get called back to your experience, even when you don't want to. And so this practice takes a lot of courage just to come in the hall and sit down and not know what's going to happen for an hour. You know, it's amazing that we do this. We go out to walk. You know, that takes, again, the courage to just face whatever it is that happens. The boredom, just facing boredom here is hard. So it's said classically that if we're able to do this, if we're able to bring the attention to what's happening, and then we're able to be curious about it, to really investigate it, meaning that it's unknown, that each moment is new, and that we really have that understanding that, that we're exploring as if for the first time the knee pain, or the step, or the fear, or whatever. There's a, that's the beginner's mind. We're interested, and joyful interest can arise. So, and also remembering that this doesn't mean that that makes the experience pleasurable. Joyful interest is the interest in however it is, whether it's painful or pleasurable or neutral. And it's joyful because we've cut through that oppression of pleasure and pain. And you know, you know, I've had so many people this week start to 
have this experience of, exp- of describing, you know, this experience of anger and kind of coming in and describing how angry they were and then giggling. You know, just ha, 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 ha. <laughs> you know, because there's that understanding that that experience is finally okay. That we're not bad people for having aversion. Uh, but that we can experience it, have it come and go like a breath, be interested in it, and not have to be oppressed by it, not have to take action, not have to feel right, not have to blame. And we all know when joyful interest is there because it will feel wonderful. Um, And the the, um, interesting part of the context of these seven factors of enlightenment is really at this kind of um, place where the next three are described because these first three are the awakening opening. Um, And you know when you have a balloon and you blow air into it and it starts to get bigger and bigger, Um, If you look at the statue of the Buddha for a moment, or if you you have some other uh, wise being, but like a Kuan Yin, you know, they don't look like they're about to go off like a rocket. Yeah, they don't look like they're over-exuberant. They don't look like they've just had this incredible hysterical laughing fit. Yeah, I mean... You know, it's pretty grounded, (laughs) you know, there's this, there's this balance of joy, and how does that happen? So that's kind of the, the idea, it's like, how do you bring in this calm with the curiosity, with the interest, the concentration, the equanimity? And uh, the, the, I think the tricky part of, especially a long retreat, but certainly also just this practice of meditation, of opening, is that we tend to open faster than equanimity appears. And that's what really requires the courage. It's like, again, if you think of awakening as a flower opening, there's that opening to the pleasure and pain, the joy and sorrow, and we open, and then we'll feel so vulnerable and so exposed until the equanimity catches up to that openness. And certainly I can attest to that we are really in the thick of that in this retreat right now. You know, there's this tremendous opening, and then we wonder why we're getting so angry or upset or caught, and we get so inside these experiences, and it's because you're doing it. You know, if you feel all over the place, it's a good sign. You know, it's, it's that the equanimity will take time and I think of equanimity as, as like the, um, you can rush a lot of things in life, but you can't rush equanimity. You know, it's, it's literally like seeing an apple blossom on a tree, or your favorite blossom, maybe it's an al- uh, almond or a lemon, but just to imagine a flower opening on a tree, a fruit tree, and then the time it takes for that to develop into a fruit and then to ripen, and then to let go. That's equanimity. And that's why a long retreat is so powerful, because you have this time, and there's not as much pressure like a 10-day retreat. You know, you kind of try to jam it all in in a 10-day retreat, but here 
you know, you have, you go through things in a very different way. And that, that's because the opening will be happening very quickly and the equanimity will take time. And then for those of you who've done a lot of practice, you know the places where you'll hit these places where the equanimity has ripened. It kind of cruises for a while and you feel almost like nothing's happening. And then there'll be kind of another opening and it'll get wild again. And then there'll be equanimity. This, this takes time. And until one is fully enlightened, this is how it goes. I have a Menindra story. Um, when um, I was on staff here, Menindra came. I was a cook, and he brought um, a woman teacher from India, Krishna. Uh, and I had my duties as a cook here, but I was also cooking for Menindra and Krishna. And I would make breakfast, you know, for yogis, and then make breakfast for um, Manindra and Krishna. And then I had the duties of making lunch, and it was quite busy. And I would want Manindra and Krishna to kind of come to breakfast on time, or at least in some semblance of time. That was my Western idea of how things should go, you know. Um, and I hadn't been to Asia where, or Hawaii, <laughs> where there tends to be a little more laid-back relationship to time. You know, but breakfast was at 6.30, and at 7, they still wouldn't have shown up. And at 7.15, you know, the um, people come in to help, you know, doing the jobs, you know, your jobs like cutting carrots and stuff. And in those days, you know, we were on more than nowadays. It was, it was more intensive. So I'd be kind of getting really irritable and um, upset, and they wouldn't show up and wouldn't show up. And this happened day after day after day, after day, and I was getting more and more aversive and more and more irritable and just didn't have a clue what they were doing. And one day I got so angry I went stomping upstairs because he was staying upstairs, and I knocked on the door, <laughs> and he opened the door and I said, what are you two doing? <laughs> And Menindra's like, oh, we are sharing merit. We are sharing merit with all the beings in the world. And <laughs> then we are sending metta to all the, you know, and he's going, all the beings in the east and all the beings in the south. And I'm like, oh. <laughs> so like, that sounded good, you know. <laughs> I wished I was doing that, you know. It was just like, oh. <laughs> Uh, and that's kind of an entrance into this talk. It's like, we have no idea what other people are doing. You know, when we're, <laughs> when we're angry, and, you know, it's like, there's that expression again, that great Native American expression, you know, that um, we can't understand someone until we've walked a mile in their moccasins. You know, and it's so true. It's like we can see, again, the roots of war. 
You know, I just, I couldn't understand what was going on. But instead of really trying to set that <laughs> stage of um, trying to understand my own experience and what was going on, as well as what was going on from Minandar and Krishna, I just got into being right and got more and more angry. So the more mindful we are, the less mindful we seem. Uh, And if you're having a kind of sense of that at this point in the retreat, that's how it is. It's like the more you start to be awake, the more you see how much you're missing. And it's really easy to start judging how much we're missing. And this is often, you know, this is the time, sometimes there's the kind of group depression that happens at this retreat because really you're seeing so much more clearly, but it's easy to judge it. Um, So I wanted to read a cartoon that um, I like a lot that describes, doesn't exactly (laughs) describe this, but I like the cartoon. Uh, It's... (laughs) It's a Calvin and Hobbes cartoon, and it was on my sister's refrigerator. And when I went to visit her before she died, um, I, I copied it. And she had had this ref- on her refrigerator probably for 15 years. And it, it means a lot to me, because I know she really appreciated it. So um, for those of you who don't know Calvin and Hobbes, Calvin is a little boy, and Hobbes is his stuffed animal, who's a tiger. And they have a very close relationship. Um, So, Calvin is in his little red wagon, and Hobbes is pushing him down a hill, a steep hill through woods that doesn't have much of a path. So, Calvin isn't looking at Hobbes. He's, like, got the little handle of the red wagon, and he's starting to go fairly swiftly down this hill. And he says to Hobbes, It's true, Hobbes. Ignorance is bliss. And then they start going down through this steep hill with, you know, things to bump into and crash into. So they're getting out of control already. And and (laughs) Calvin says, once you know things, you start seeing problems everywhere. (laughs) Does that sound familiar? (laughs) We can make a problem out of anything. Okay, so once you know things, you start seeing problems everywhere. And once you see problems, you feel like you ought to try to fix them. And fixing problems always seems to require personal change. Now they're starting to go really fast, (laughs) out of control. And change means doing things that aren't fun. I say fooey to that. So now he's turning around, and Hobbes is terrified because he's let go of the handle, and they're just flying down without anybody in control. So he says to the, his tiger, but if you're willfully stupid, you don't know any better, so you can keep doing whatever you like. So they've completely, they're completely out of control. And <laughs> he says, the secret to happiness is short-term stupid self-interest. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then Hobbes is going like this, we're heading for that cliff. And Calvin says, I don't want to know about it. (laughs) (laughs) 
how much do we do that? I don't want to know about it. And so they go over the cliff and like they crash really big time. It's like this total crash really far down. And Hobbes says, I'm not sure I can stand so much bliss. (laughs) (laughs) And Calvin says, careful, we don't want to learn anything from this. I mean, it's us. It's like humans, you know. Careful. We don't want to learn anything from this so that we can keep doing it, you know. I mean, it's like, heaven forbid, we should change. But of course we have that, again, the roots of ignorance, the roots of war, the roots of peace. And how much does it feel like a battle? When these seven factors in balance, it's the end of the battle. And we've all tasted this. Everyone in this room has tasted this peace. It's like, oh, and it seems so clear. You don't have to battle with a thought. It's so clear. You just let it come and go by itself, and you know the war is over. So when your war is over, the war is over in the world. When you come to peace, it's like the whole world comes to peace. And when you're at war, the whole world is at war. And that's what brings us to practice. It's like that's the homing instinct. And we know know that part of us so well that wants to believe that the secret to happiness is short-term, stupid self-interest. You know, and the Buddha taught that that long-term, it's a really long-term, it feels sometimes, search for understanding is really the key to peace, you know, the search for wisdom, compassion, finding that within ourselves. So when Calvin says, you know, I don't want to know about this when he's heading for the cliff, you know, that's indifference, denial, passivity, the opposite of equanimity, it's the opposite of peace, resistance, careful, we don't want to learn anything from this, You know, how much do we have that sense, again, from the energizing qualities of the seven factors, we'll usually have that sense of enough energy to really explore. And then we're willing to make mistakes. We're willing to risk. We're willing not to know what's going to happen. We've become interested in that range of um, (laughs) karmic knots. Maybe it's fear, maybe it's anger, maybe it's desire, you know, maybe it's the fear of death. Whatever it is, we start to become interested in it. Mm. So remembering with um, mindfulness that it's really just that pure intention to understand our experience rather than to judge it, our pure intention to understand others, rather than to judge them. And certainly, we have to face all the judgment we have in that process of ourselves and others. Remember, the more you have that purity of intention, the more we'll get to see the judgment. So calm. It's said that calm is like the experience of going from the um, 
hot desert sun. It'll say midday in the desert in the heat in that hot sun to the cool shade of a tree. The Pali word is pasadi, but it's just that sense of if you um, are sensitive to sound and um, really tune into a refrigerator buzzing, you know that buzzing? You know when it goes off? That's calm. And you know, it's just like, ah, that feeling, ah, (laughs) thank God, (laughs) turned off. You know, and we know it in our system. Um, my conditioning is that that's a scary thing. Hypervigilance, being uncalm, is safe. Calm was scary. Other people, it's really a pleasant experience, and they get attached to it. You know, so the, the very thing that for some people might seem like, wow, I can't wait to have it, for another person it might be scary. Or, you know, usually for us, (laughs) of course, it's all of it. You know, we have the calm, that refrigerator goes off, and then maybe it'll feel like it's in balance, and then maybe the energy goes down a little bit. And the very thing we were attached to and liked will be boring, and it'll feel like nothing's happening, and just we just want something to happen, anything. Anything different. (laughs) One of my favorite things, um, Mahasi Sayadaw was this extraordinary teacher, um, practitioner, scholar, uh, was said to be fully enlightened, and he came here in 79, the spring of 79, and he made such an impression on me in terms of this factor of enlightenment. He was like the embodiment of calm. And it kind of, I had this mixed feeling of just terror of somebody that calm. Like, it was so empty and so calm and also so attractive. I had both um, reactions to that incredible calm. Um, And it said that just before he died, you know, if you can imagine just that perfect equanimity of a fully enlightened being, um, and I think, well, I think it was a heart attack he had or something, but it was very quick. He, he died within seconds of this explosion in his heart, um, and he just said, oh, a new sensation. <laughs> <laughs> and then he died. Isn't that great? <laughs> oh, heart attack. Hmm? A new sensation, something different, calm. It's possible for us to relate to whatever like that when calm is present. You know, the other day when the colors of the leaves were peaking, and I stay near the Gaston Pond down there, and I was, um, I came out in the early morning, um, to look at the leaves, and this, um, I was sitting on this rock, minding my own business, kind of like just sitting there, and I felt really calm, and the, the lake, the, the water of the pond was really still, and the colors were really beautiful, and I was there for quite a while. Um, and then 
um, the sun was so warm. I, I stood up on the rock to take off my coat, and there was, I looked down, and there was this huge snake, like right there, that I hadn't seen, that had been there the whole time. Um, and it's not like, um, you know, my, my family, my mother and my sister are like out of control, not so phobic around snakes. And I have that conditioning to sort of go, you know. But I'm not like nuts about it. But, you know, I definitely had fear arise. Um, so I, I almost decided to leave. And then I thought, wait a minute, you know, this snake's been here for like an hour. And you've been really calm. And so I sat down and I just watched that like, you know, and the fear, just like the waves of it. And then slowly just being with that fear allowing it, being interested in it. And it was so interesting to me because it was just like the, the snake had been there the whole time. And suddenly to see that difference and to just notice those waves and then to notice the calm come again, just like that refrigerator, the buzzing and it going off, the buzzing, the going off. The fear just felt like this static So for some people, we need to develop a taste for calm. Other people, the taste is already there. Uh, but I think um, for all of us, there'll be these landscapes or almost like weather systems of calm. Uh, and then it will get muddy or stormy again. And to see if we can allow for that range, storm, calm purity, purification, that it's okay, that we don't have to be identified with either state. One can learn to be calm in the storm. Uh, and I think sometimes the weather here is very, it's a really good teacher for that, like when it gets stormy. See if you can go out in it and, and, and just feel how you can be quiet and calm in the midst of a storm. You know, that's, that's how one learns this, again, the calm, concentration, equanimity. It's this just extraordinarily peaceful energy, even if it's wild. So concentration, you know, we've also talked a lot about that, but uh, you know, you know when a radio is, uh, you can't get it tuned, and there's this static. Concentration is getting it tuned. It's getting ourselves tuned, so that, like, say, with the breath, you know, you'll feel that inability to aim the attention, connect with it. That's like the static, and when you can aim, sustain the attention. It's like you've got the station. It's tuned, you're tuned in. It's really interesting. Uh, and what we're learning to do is you find an anchor in this practice, and it doesn't matter what the anchor is. It can be sound, it can be the breath, it can be the body, it could be fear. 
it doesn't matter what it, the object is, but it's, you know, of course we encourage something accessible and often more neutral for us. We try to find a safe anchor as a place to take haven. Uh, and then you choose this place as a place to tune the radio. When you find the station, you come to stillness through that one thing. And it is a repression. You're, you're repressing everything to be with that one thing. And the goal of that concentration is rest, is strength, is renewal. Um, and it's not the total goal of the practice. Uh, it's, it's to allow for enough stillness so that we can see change clearly. So you learn to come to stillness to tune into one thing so that you can let go of control and come to stillness through change. So that if you're with the breath for a while or with sound for a while, that tuning in like that will allow us then to be able to be with a thought, a body sensation, knee pain, another thought, body sensation. So we're shifting from the pure concentration with one object to momentary concentration with many objects out of control, uncertainty, the flow of change. And it's kind of, you know, we've heard us talk about this, but there's this art um, of learning when to do just one thing and stay with that steady, and when to let go of control and go with momentary change. If you feel confused at all, it's usually helpful to see if you can just be with confusion, allow it, and then steady, steady, steady. But also to remember that you can come to stillness through anything. And over time, the idea is that you learn to come to stillness through everything. You can come to stillness through the feeling that things are impossible. You can come to stillness through seeing a banana on your plate. You can come to stillness through watching the steam come off a bowl when the cooks put out food. You can come through the stillness through right now sitting here listening to my voice. Concentration is what allows us to receive. Receive the experience, receive the experience, receive the experience. Um, when we talk about investigation, that energizing factor of mind, um, and we, we encourage when you feel complacent or when you feel dull, to kind of bring this questioning attention, well, what is happening, free from our ideas about it. If there isn't some concentration, we'll get tight and we won't be able to do it. That's okay. So in the last talk, remember I was talking about you can't force investigation. The reason you can't force it is because you have to have enough concentration to even let ask the question. You know, so to be able to receive 
the moment experience, to be able to receive a breath, to be able to receive a sound. That's what I mean by coming to stillness. It's what allows us to actually be here. And this, this is incredibly vulnerable. Delicate, soft. Uh, and if, if we can't do that, it's okay to kind of open up the attention, open up the attention, open up the attention, and just do whatever you can to be here. Sometimes it's opening the eyes. Sometimes we have to, you know, pull our knees up and just kind of wait it out sometimes if there's a lot of restlessness when we can't concentrate. You know, you try to find something to hold the attention, like the surface of the body, if you can't bring the attention to a small place. Mayor Baba was a, a great teacher um, that talked about the difference between being angry and being in love. And he said that when we're in love, that no words are necessary because we feel so deeply connected, we don't feel separate, that no words are necessary. And that when we're angry, we tend to shout because we feel so distant and so separate. Concentration is what allows us to feel that feeling like we're in love, but with the breath or with a sound. You know, we receive it. There's not a feeling of duality or with our body or with a star, you know, the sky or the leaves. Just, again, I encourage you to explore that sense of how do we how do we feel separate through seeing? How do we feel separate through hearing? How do we feel separate through tasting, touching, thinking? And it's usually when we're not into, in this modality of receiving the touch of the universe each moment in this way. It doesn't mean that we have to be some kind of absorbed state of concentration. This is just this light touch each moment. And this can be very, um, I don't know, it's almost like when we talk about going deep in meditation, there's like this idea that somehow we're not being with what's on the surface of life. But in actual fact, deep is on the surface. Deep is just allowing what's happening in a moment to touch us, and then another moment to touch us. And it's very light and very surfacey. It's like the sound of a bird. Practice with it. See if you can receive it and notice if there's a feeling of duality or not. In a moment of seeing, like right now, looking at the Buddha or me, or Patricia or <laughs> the ocean, you see, is there a feeling that the attention is at with the eyes, is the attention moving out and creating a separate person right now? Or can we bring our attention back to the eyes, notice color and form? Concentration is just receiving the color and form right now, allowing ourselves to be touched by the sight. It's fun to explore. It's fun to practice this 
with sight, sound, taste, smell, touch, thought, emotion. And it's also not to judge when we feel separate or angry when we're shouting, which brings us to equanimity. So there's calm, concentration, and equanimity. Equanimity is unconditional acceptance, peace, imperturbability. It feels wonderful. It's like this perfect transparency where we have no resistance whatsoever to what's happening. So the attention will feel effortless, smooth, spacious. Sometimes it's called holy equanimity because we're deeply connected, we're deeply receiving, but we're also not taking it personally. So this is marriage of not taking what's, person, what's happening personally, which is uh, detachment, but there's connection. It's not disconnected, it's not indifferent. So the experience that seems so much like this imperturbability, but isn't, is indifference. And the opposite of this is aversion, anger, fear, and attachment. Equanimity is the ability to treat each experience equally. There's an experience of feeling contentment. So I'd like to describe a few experiences that I've had um, where I started to explore um, how it was that I was getting chained um, by pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, and where I was losing equanimity but didn't understand it. Um, And I think some of you will relate to this in terms of reactivity and being a yogi on a long retreat. Uh, This is is when I went to my first long retreat in Wales. Um, And there were a lot of conditions that went into a kind of pervasive misery that I experienced at this first long retreat. Um, It was June, and I had finished working here after a year on staff. And I was kind of looking forward to a vacation-ish experience. Like I (laughs) was expecting, you know, it was June. In my mind, June meant sunny, warm, um, and it was really cold and rainy. Just amazing. And then I was allergic to everything, like the building, the rooms, you know, and um, let's see. Oh, yeah. uh, My friends had donated um, money for me to go to this retreat, and so I was feeling like I shouldn't be miserable. You know, that, that there was that pressure of feeling like I should be doing better at the practice uh, than I was. So that was sort of all the conditions. Uh, uh, and I, I was just just in one constant, like, flu-like experience of sneezing and coughing and knowing that everyone was having aversion to me in the um, dorm that I was in all night, keeping people up sneezing, and then in the hall. So I decided to go to this... Um, place that was being built down the street. It was like a church that was being built under construction, which was really cold. Um, so, and I'd be sitting there and people would be coming in and working, you know, and everything I was trying just didn't, nothing was working. You know that feeling when you feel like nothing's working? 
so this went on for three weeks, and then this one day it was sunny, like it, the sun came out, and I was just beyond belief happiness. You know that short term. Um, well, I went out to this little field, and I brought my blanket and my zafu, and I was just like, this is like the best day of my life. It's sunny, you know, and I thought I was going to have the best sitting, and I did for a while. I was just like pleasant pleasant happiness, warm, warm, warm. And, you know, I stopped sneezing so much, and it was just like, oh, I was so happy. And then I started sweating. <laughs> and it was like, oh. And, and then these flies started landing. <laughs> I was like, oh. <laughs> and I was so upset, you know. And I went into the teacher, and I'm like, there's no peace. There's just no peace. And this teacher was so encouraging. You know, he's, I like, he was like, yeah, there is no peace. <laughs> <laughs> it was just like such a shock. Like, he, you know, he was happy for me, you know. And I was like, whoa, you know, just, it was so interesting. But he, you know, he thought I was like enlightened from this experience. And I was just like, whoa, you know, this is weird, you know. Um, and this was the beginning of me starting to get, you know, this whole thing around pleasant and unpleasant. I, I didn't get it yet. Um, but I knew that this wasn't peace. You know, I knew that, you know, that much. Uh, and then I came here that fall for a, a six-week retreat. And um, just for those of you who are getting caught in aversion, this is, you know, fun to hear that somebody could get this bad. Uh, so I was sitting, and um, in those days, during the three-month retreat, the teachers used to go on what was called Independence Week. That meant they disappeared for the week. I'm not kidding. The, the teachers would split for a whole week. And this teacher I had said, you know, while well, we're gone, <laughs> he said, go in your room and don't come out. You know, and I'm not saying this was a good instruction. Please don't take this as like something to do, because it really sent me <laughs> over the edge. <laughs> so I, w I was like afraid to come out of my room, and somebody was bringing me my lunch. So and he said, "Don't take showers." And I was like, "Okay." You know, like I was just really green and innocent, and I was really overly sensitive. You know, I, I open way too quickly, and you know, the equanimity takes a long time to catch up. So I'm that type. So. I'm I'm getting more and more um, open and sensitive. <laughs> That's a nice way to put it. Um, and the woman sleeping in the room next to me um, snored like really loud, just, just the loudest snoring you can imagine. And these nights were going on, I think three or four nights went, and I was just, I didn't understand. Remember, I didn't understand the relationship between unpleasant and aversion and aversion to aversion and, you know, rage, you know, I didn't get that yet. So I'm in there, and it's just like, I couldn't go out of my room, I thought, you know, and I was just, I went into this aversion attack like you wouldn't believe, and I finally took my bench, and I, I found where I thought her head was. <laughs> And I took the bench and I just slammed it as hard as I could. I'm not recommending this, you know. <laughs> this is what we're saying not to do. Um, 
<laughs> and it stopped. <laughs> and it was like effective. You know, here's that short-term self-interest, right? I, I was so happy for a while, uh, but then like, you know, then I was sitting there going, ooh, you know, I was like humiliated and so much remorse. And then like, an hour later I heard, <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh God. And then I was like, oh, thank God she's sleeping. <laughs> she, you know, I was having ambivalence at that point. <laughs> but I just felt so out of control and just, I didn't understand. And it was so painful. This aversion was so painful. And then, you know, it continued. I'm telling you, it got worse before it got better. Then um, that next night, I was sort of dealing with the snoring. And then um, I was getting more sensitive and less equanimity. And <laughs> the sound of the heat, it was like winter, and the heat came on. And um, somehow, it was really unbearable. You know, it was just, for me, it was really unpleasant and the unpredictability of it. Uh, you know, I was like, you know, so I actually disobeyed the instructions at this point, and I went outside, but I hadn't been outside for days, and I was really sensitive. And I could hear these cows mooing in the distance, and it felt like the sound was just ripping through my body. And I, then I got panicky, and it was like, this was so unpleasant, and I was like, I'll never be able to go outside. You know, you know, I'm like a wreck, you know, and I, it just felt like there was again that sense of, oh no, there's no peace, this is permanent, you know, and I went back into my room and um, it just, this incredible aversion was coming up. So I went out and I knew the place really well and I turned all the heat off. <laughs> <laughs> Again, not recommended. <laughs> Write a note to maintenance before <laughs> you do this. You know, and I thought, okay, you know, again, I had that short-term self-interest. It stopped. You know, I felt better. I'm in my room. And, you know, phew. And then I, I finally decided that I was going to come to breakfast because I'd had it with this staying in my room stuff. And I came out, and everybody was in coats. And... <laughs> <laughs> you could see your breath. <laughs> and I was like, you know, this isn't working, you know. <laughs> and that's when I just, something in me just gave in. You know, it's just like this, again, just, I want to understand. You know, just motivation. I, w I mean, I just felt so defeated and humiliated and remorseful. Um, and it was just so excruciating. And I just got this drive to understand. I just didn't want to be oppressed by this anymore. And I started just when there was a sound. Sound for me is my doorway. And aversion is my doorway to liberation. You know, we think it's the obstacle. But actually, aversion was my doorway to freedom. And I started really just noticing, well, what's wrong with the sound and what's the texture? And again, that ability to start receiving it, noticing when there was aversion, and getting that what I was getting defeated by was the aversion to the aversion. It had nothing to do with the sound.
It was not liking the not liking. And that's what I'd been running from my whole life. And when I started to get that, this is where the Buddha taught we can get liberated. It was right in that place of contact, contact with a sight, a smell, a taste, a touch, a thought. That contact, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. Explore it. Explore it where it's easy. Explore some things when they're pleasant. Explore the texture of whatever and see if you can get interested in this process. You know, because it's so, you know, once I started to get it, I'll explain one more story, you know, because I can tell, of course, you know, this is my thing, so I can talk about aversion till I'm blue in the face. But there was um, the Upandita retreat in 84, you know, we, we started to learn this new way of, you know, reporting our experience, you know, and we all had our little notebook, um, and Upandita asked us all to sit in the hall instead of going to our rooms. And I had been used to sitting in my room for years and not sitting in the hall. And the woman next to me um <coughs> used to write notes during every sitting. Just imagine the person next to you sitting there writing notes all the whole sitting. Um, and, you know, first of all, I thought she shouldn't be doing it right. I mean, it was that. I was right already because of that. But then on top of it, I'm very sensitive to sound. She was using a pencil. <laughs> Heaven forbid she was using a pencil, right, because you could hear that scratchy. It, like a pen would have been quieter. You know, so uh, the pencil was making it worse. And it got to the point where sh when I would see her walk in the hall, and I'd be sitting there kind of sweating, waiting for her to come in. And then I'd see her, and I would just hate her, you know, just like. And it was that anticipation of the pencil, you know. And every day, it was getting worse. It was like this, it's like whatever we're struggling with. Now, for you, it might be fear. It might be attachment, you know. It, it's the same stuff. Um, but it's that ability, I finally started being able to just be with the sound of the pencil. And I'm not kidding, it was just like, I would be sweating with anticipatory dread of her lifting up that pencil. And, it just, and, it, and I would think it was the sound, right? It wasn't the sound, it was the aversion to the sound. And if it's something pleasant that you think is driving you crazy, it's not the pleasant thing. It's the wanting it. And I kept thinking I had to get rid of the aversion or get rid of the wanting rather than just let it be okay and start to feel the experience of wanting, to start experience the feeling of aversion, seeing that that was the liberation, that I didn't have to get rid of the sound, that I didn't have to get rid of the aversion. But this, this doesn't mean the equanimity, the being okay with the experience, doesn't make the experience pleasant. The Buddha described wanting and not wanting, desire and aversion, as suffering. And it's because we feel separate. They're suffering. We're wanting something in the moment that isn't even happening. Another way to put this is, you know, and you've heard this many times, it's like there's this flow of change. 
And when we're in the process of being with that change, we're with the truth. We're connected. We feel whole and complete. And then when something pleasant passes and we're holding on to it when we're wanting it, we're no longer in the present moment. We feel incomplete, broken. And so it's just that wanting something pleasant outside of ourselves that isn't even happening in the moment. That's why we suffer. And being able to go, oh, it's simply wanting, and let ourselves experience that we're back in the present moment. Wanting is happening in that moment. We're with it. We'll feel complete. Not wanting uh, something unpleasant. When we let ourselves experience that not wanting fully, we're in the present moment and we'll feel complete. That's awakening. That's enlightenment because you're with that experience. You don't have to get rid of the not wanting. You're not having to get rid of the wanting. And that's why equanimity is called holy. It's sweet. We no longer have to get rid of anything or desire anything. We're whole and complete in the moment with whatever's happening. So calm, concentration, equanimity are what balance, bring evenness, transparency, effortlessness, um, lack of resistance to what's happening. Investigation, energy, joyful interest helps us open to our experience. And mindfulness is that uh, thread of beginning again beginning again, that spirit of beginning again, (laughs) beginning again, beginning again. It's possible each moment. It's not far away from us. It doesn't depend on a hundred years of practice. It doesn't depend on a hundred million years of practice. It's just any time in any moment that we get here fully. It doesn't depend on time can happen right now. It can happen five seconds from now. It doesn't depend on any experience. It can happen with any experience. So it's a very heartening teaching. Teaching doesn't matter what plane of existence we're on. It even makes the frogs happy to hear the seven factors. <laughs> I'd like to end with a uh, poem by Hanshan De Ching. He was born in 1546. See, it doesn't matter what age we live in. <laughs> hmm. Resting at my open window, I gaze out at mountains. A thousand peaks of blue and purple rise above the pines. Without a thought or care, White clouds come and go, so utterly accepting, so totally relaxed.
Mostly we just have to keep relaxing and relaxing and relaxing. So utterly accepting, so utterly relaxed. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.